0: Invite you to open your Bible to Luke chapter 9. Luke chapter 9. As we continue in this magnificent gospel. And uh, watching as Jesus leads His disciples and teaches and trains them, Uh, we're going to be... If you remember where we've been, uh, Jesus uh, had sent early in the chapter the twelve out on a great mission and uh, gave them authority and power to cast out demons and to uh, heal the sick and to preach the gospel, and they did that. Uh, Then uh, Jesus feeds the 5,000, sort of an exam for the disciples, which they fail miserably. Peter then uh, rises and confesses Jesus as the Christ Then uh, we had discipleship lessons, in a sense. Jesus um, speaking what a disciple must do. Take up your cross, deny yourself, and follow me. And then Jesus went up on the Mount of Transfiguration. He was up there with Peter, James, and John. Moses and Elijah appeared to them. The glory of God was shining all around them. Uh, The three disciples were uh, shocked, amazed, terrified, as uh, we can only imagine. And, uh, And then they come down the mountain. And that's where we uh, take up our text, we're going to begin in verse 37 of Luke chapter 9. On the next day, when they had come down from the mountain, a great crowd met him, and behold, a man from the crowd cried out, "'Teacher, I beg you to look at my son, for he is my only child.' And behold, a spirit seizes him, and he suddenly cries out. It convulses him so that he foams at the mouth and shatters him and will hardly leave him. And I begged your disciples to cast it out, but they could not. Jesus answered, O faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you and bear with you? Bring your son here. While he was coming, the demon threw him to the ground and convulsed him, but Jesus rebuked the unclean spirit and healed the boy and gave him back to his father, and all were astonished at the majesty of God. But while they were all marveling at everything he was doing, Jesus said to his disciples, Let these words sink into your ears. The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men." But they did not understand this saying, and it was concealed from them so that they might not perceive it, and they were afraid to ask him about this saying. An argument arose among them as to which of them was the greatest. But Jesus, knowing the reasoning of their hearts, took a child and put him by his side and said to them, "'Whoever receives this child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives him who sent me. For he who is least among you all is the one who is great.'" John answered, Master, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he does not follow with us. But Jesus said to him, Do not stop him, for the one who is not against you is for you. When the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem, and he sent messengers ahead of him who went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make preparations for him. But the people did not receive him, because his face was set toward Jerusalem. And when his disciples James and John saw it, they said, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? But he turned and rebuked them, and they went on to another village. The title of my message this morning is The Disciples and the Terrible, Horrible, No Good, Very Bad Day. And I stole that blatantly, of course, from the children's a classic regarding Alexander and... Uh, thought it's a, a, just a great description of what we find here with the disciples. You came to church this morning and uh, you to, tried to uh, put on your best face. Maybe uh, got yourself cleaned up a little bit. Try to get the kids in line and um, and. Put your best foot forward in a sense as you came in and uh, you're sitting now and you look around you and you see a lot of nice people all cleaned up. And it would be very easy, uh, it's easy to do when you come to church on a Sunday morning to pretend that we're doing fairly well. We, we've got this discipleship thing fairly worked out. At least that's the image that we tend to portray. But the truth is, of course, that uh, we struggle as disciples. And some of you this morning are feeling that struggle very profoundly. You know uh, where your mind has been, where your, where your heart has been, where your body has been. You know uh, what your mouth has said. You know uh, the spirit that was just about you this week, maybe even this morning. And if we were just going to sit down together, you and me in a corner, and I ask you, you know, honestly, how you... How are you doing in your walk with the Lord? How's your, how's your week been? Some of you, would, the tears would just come immediately to the front because you just feel like you're failing. You have a sense of what a disciple ought to be, what a disciple ought to look like, and you look around you, and it, and it seems like other people are, you know, more or less attaining that mark, and then there's you. The person who does things you know you shouldn't do and the person who fails to do things that you know you ought to do. And even though maybe you had a, a step forward in some uh, some area of this life, maybe you didn't uh, respond in anger at a certain circumstance or situation, so you took a step forward, and yet it wasn't an hour later and you felt like you were taking two steps back. That's reality. And, and uh, one of the wonderful things about the Bible is that it allows us uh, to... To understand what discipleship actually looks like. Instead of just our assumptions about what uh, followers of Jesus look like, it tells us what they look like. And here we have this embarrassing collection of discipleship debacles. There are five separate paragraphs, five separate events, and in every one of them, disciples, the disciples are found wanting. They are shown to be embarrassingly inadequate, incompetent, drastically out of step with Jesus' purpose and Jesus' mission in the world. They cannot get it right, and they got almost everything terribly wrong. Have you ever looked at um, maybe an old high school yearbook or just pictures from back then? And... And really secretly wish you'd stayed home that day. It just wasn't flattering. Or maybe you've watched old home movies and you had no idea. You could be, um, act so silly or stupid or crude, whatever it might be. And uh, there are certain things in our life that all of us feel uh, would be best left to the anonymity anonymity of history. And I wouldn't have doubted that the disciples cringed a little when they get uh, Luke's newly printed gospel and they read it. And they come to Luke chapter 9. It's so blatantly honest, and, and man, you can just see them shaking their head sheepishly. Wow. Wow. The things they did not understand, the things that they said, the things that they did, how, how silly. And how patient, how kind the Lord had been with them. You see, while these stories reflect accurately the failures of the disciples, they are intended, I believe, by Luke to reflect wonderfully the majesty of Jesus' love for them. His commitment to them. He doesn't give up on them. And it's a great source of encouragement to us in the the missteps of the disciples. I think we can easily recognize ourselves. Some of the things that we see here are eerily similar to maybe what you've experienced this past week. But Jesus doesn't abandon his own. He is the savior of sinners, the friend of failures. And he promises to make these men useful and fruitful. These are the men through whom he's going to carry out his great gospel mission in the world. So this morning, we're going to first then look at the failures and noting Jesus' love and His grace to them. First of all, we come to a failure of faith. Verses 37 through 43 had to be an intensely embarrassing and painful circumstance for the disciples. Jesus uh, comes down from the mountain. There had been a scene of great glory honor. The Father had uh, affirmed the identity of Jesus. This is my Son whom I love. Listen to Him. He's my chosen one. And Jesus comes down from that scene of glory down into a scene of chaos and confusion and collapse. A great crowd meets Jesus. And a man from the crowd comes to him begging, teacher, I beg you, look at my son, for he is my only child. And the father goes on and explains the desperate condition of this child. He has clearly heard of Jesus' ability and and begs for help. This is a parent's heartache and, and the unique heartache of a parent with a child who is Something's wrong. It's not, the child is not like the other children. His boy doesn't go and play like the other children go and play. His children, his, his child is not developing in, in the way other children are. There's, there's something drastically wrong and it's, and it's evident and people are embarrassed by it. People don't want to be near to this, this man and his boy when, when he convulses like this and he foams at the mouth. People don't know what to say. I'm sure there are many people around who would be judging this father and, and, and the mother maybe for being in sin in some way, that if God has done this to their family, done this to their child, surely there must be something wrong with, with the parents. Special needs families experience this all the time, where a child misbehaves in public and, and people are quietly condemning their, their parenting. Or things aren't going right, or treatment maybe is, is, is maybe some people think, well, they ought to be doing this, they shouldn't be doing that. There's all sorts of condemnation and critiques that are offered to people when they're in these difficult circumstances. So this man comes to Jesus. Problem, of course, is he's already been to the disciples, and they couldn't do anything. Helpless, incompetent. And how humiliated it must have been. We know there's a great crowd there. We know that there are Pharisees and scribes and teachers of the law, critics, people who are suspicious of Jesus and his disciples. And they're all there to watch this humiliating failure. And it must have been very perplexing to the disciples. They had been on this mission trip. They had experienced the power of God. They had cast out demons. They had healed people. And they must have felt quite confident then. And, uh, Jesus was up on the mountain with the three other uh, men, but, but this man came to them. And with, with, I would think, confidence, they go and they address this boy and they address the demon and they say, in the name of Jesus, right, we command you to leave. Be gone. They rebuke the demon. And the demon grabs a hold of the boy and he convulses and foams at the mouth and is cast to the ground. And so maybe uh, one of the disciples shoved the first guy aside and says, "Here, let me try it." He must be doing something incorrectly. And so he tries it and that doesn't work and, and then maybe they get together as a group and they try and uh, every time they try their incompetence and failure just becomes more publicly pronounced. They are exposed publicly as incompetent. And they and they are exposed as incompetent as incompetent as the disciples of Jesus, speaking in Jesus' name. That makes the the failure all the more terrible because the enemies of Jesus already had suspicions about Jesus and these followers, and, and as they watched the incompetence of these disciples, their suspicions seemed to be confirmed. It is a fraud. I told you it was. Even the father seems affected by their inability. If you read the account in Mark chapter 9, uh, the father comes to Jesus and, and, and says, please heal my son if you can. And Jesus responds to that immediately and says, if you can. Why does the man say, if you can? Well, because the disciples couldn't. Jesus' own men couldn't. You see, it's the same today. There are most unbelievers, most unbelievers I would say, doubt that there's anything spiritually real, anything authentically divine or supernatural about the church of Jesus Christ. In their minds, uh, so often the church is just a bunch of people with shared moral values, shared religious convictions, maybe just shared bigotry. A bunch of people with common beliefs who just get together to shore up their narrow convictions. They don't suspect there's any real truth to it, or at least not radical truth. Not, not truth in the sense of a living God who's, who's truly present in power with His Holy Spirit, actively doing Things that only God can do, transforming lives, reconciling broken relationships, healing failing marriages, setting people free from their addictions and their idols. And so every time a pastor falls into sin, every time a Christian marriage collapses, every time someone who is identified as a Christian commits a crime or just gossips, who lies, who's a porn addict, who's a dishonest businessman, the world notices and their suspicions seem concerned seem confirmed, right? They did they, they judge just what we thought. There's nothing real there. And so as Jesus comes down from the mountain, that's what he faces, this sea of doubt. He sees the suspicion of the crowds. He sees, he sees the sheepish incompetence of his disciples. He hears the pleas of a desperate father and the reality of demonic oppression. I would think he maybe would have wanted just to just go back up the mountain. And he grieves. Notice what he says Oh, faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you and bear with you? He grieves. The weight of all of it, the misery of all of it, this is not how it was created to be. To whom is Jesus speaking these words? Well, he's most likely not saying it to the Father. The Father has come to Jesus in faith, though it is a shaky faith. The Father will say in Mark 9, Lord, I do believe. Help my unbelief. He's certainly addressing the suspicion of the crowd at large. They're like the people in Moses' day. This this seems to come from Deuteronomy, where God calls the Israelites a faithless and twisted generation. They don't believe that God is able to provide for them in the wilderness. But he almost certainly is addressing the disciples and rebuking them. They are faithless, lacking sufficient faith. And I'd like to ask the question, what is the nature of of that deficiency? Because they obviously they believe in Jesus. They've just confessed He's the Christ. So in in what way has their faith failed? Well, I think you get a clue again from Mark 9, where we read that when, when Jesus had entered the house, the disciples asked Him privately, why could we not cast it out? They're, they're perplexed. They're flummoxed. They couldn't figure out what went wrong. And Jesus said to them, this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. Now, I've always read that as a Jesus uh, saying, well, there's different sorts of demons, and, and it's sort of identifying your demon that this kind needs a, It's like in um, How to Train Your Dragon, right, where they're all studying uh, the various kinds of dragons and, and what they can do, and then you've got to find the right cure for that partic- to deal with that particular dragon. Well, that, I don't think that's what's going on here. I think Jesus is rebuking them. You see, he's reminding them of the essential importance of relying on God to do the work of God. Apparently, they had not prayed. Someone steps up and, and says his bold uh, you're right, statement, come out, and it doesn't. And then another one maybe tries it, and, and nothing happens. And apparently, no one stopped to say, gentlemen, maybe we should ask the Lord. Maybe we need to pray for wisdom. Maybe we should just rely on God. I think it's a rebuke. The disciples did not have that faith that drove them to lean on God and rely on God to do only what only God can do. So Reichen, I think, puts his finger on it when he calls this a failure to actively trust God to do what only God can do. You see, it, it's very natural. Their, their success in their missionary journey had given them some confidence in their own ability. So when the father comes and says, here's my son, can you please help my son? They confidently step forward. Yes, we can do this, but they couldn't do it. What does Jesus say in John 15? Apart from me, you can do nothing. There's no no ability inherent in, in these disciples. And as soon as they began to think that there was, they were rendered incompetent, revealed as unbelieving, and they grieved the heart of Jesus. Reichen says sometimes we grieve Jesus in the same way. We say we believe in God, but do we trust Him to do what only He can do, which would look like a life of prayer? All too often we tend to try to serve Him in our own strength, and then nothing happens, or at least nothing that demonstrates the majesty of God. The main point of this episode is that we need to trust God to do all the spiritual work that only He can do. It's very relevant for us as disciples today. How many things in your life aren't you trying to accomplish, things that you're pursuing, seeking after? But are you trusting God in the kind of trust, in the kind of faith that produces prayer, that you're taking that need or that desire and that request, and you're, you're, you're begging for the Lord's help and then leaving it there with Him, trusting God to do what only God can do in God's time and in God's way? It's one of the great failures of the church. We trust in the things that we can accomplish. We trust in our confessions, our forms, our sincerity, our abilities, and then we wonder why there seems to be so little power in the church. So few conversions. So few change, dramatically change lives, so little impact in the world around us. And and as we experience the, you see, the incompetence of our unbelief, we adjust our expectations. You see how often that happens in the church? Where we'll settle for so much less than the power of God, so much less than magnifying the majesty of God. We'll settle for being right or being friendly, being spiritual, being moral, being orthodox. But the evidence of our unbelief is that we stop expecting and asking Jesus to do the possible and no one in the watching world around us is astonished at the majesty of God at work among us. That's a crime. That's a fundamental failure of discipleship. We're not here to look good. We're here that God might look good. We're here to magnify the gospel there should be power evident in our midst. So Paul writes in 2 Corinthians chapter 14 that when people come in and they see the worshiping, praying, believing the church and the things that God is doing there, they fall down on their face and they say God is really, really among you. They're convicted by the majesty of God. We need to pray that God would do that in our midst and in our lives so that people look at your marriage, they look at your family and, and, and all the weakness of it, all the inability, yet they see something of majesty, something that God and God alone can do. And they praise him. And so we have a failure to believe. Secondly, a failure to understand. Jesus speaks immediately following his miracle. They're amazed, they're awed. And notice what he says, let these words sink into your ears. Get this, pay attention. The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. It's a fascinating text because Jesus clearly commands them to hear him, and yet we're told in verse 45 they didn't hear him. In fact, they couldn't understand it because it was concealed from them. So on the one hand, Jesus charges them to hear. On the other hand, the Father seems to be keeping them from hearing. So how do you make sense of that? It seems like Jesus and the Father are, are, are at opposite ends. Well, I don't, we, that can't be. Jesus and the Father are one in heart and mind and purpose at all times. So I think there are two things true here. One, it is necessary for Jesus to speak to them and to speak to them clearly about what's going to happen to him. After he is crucified and raised again to life and ascended into heaven, they are going to remember everything that Jesus had said. They're going to realize he was not a victim, that he had planned this, the Father had planned this. He knew exactly what he was doing. He was in charge of all the circumstances. He was the lamb offering his life. He wasn't a victim whose life was taken from him. And so, the, so these words spoken now, even though they don't, they don't understand them now, will be a key part of their faith later. So why doesn't the Father let them see it now? I think they just simply couldn't handle it. They are men of their culture. They have expectations about what the Messiah is, about what Jesus has come to do. They are convinced that he's come to be the King of Israel. And if if it really would have sunk into their minds that he is going to be put into the hands of men, he's going to be uh, crucified, they would have done everything in their power to keep him from the cross. That was so evidently not possible, so evidently not the right thing. And so their cultural blindness covered their ears, kept them from being able to receive this truth. They would have become an obstacle to Christ's mission. They didn't have spiritual understanding. Boy, that is so often true of modern disciples. It reminds us to ask ourselves, where has the culture blinded our eyes? Where are we people who are so uh, conformed to our culture that there are things of the kingdom of God right in front of us? Things that God says to us very clearly, and yet we don't see it, we can't hear it. Promises that he makes scriptures uh, that we need to see and lay hold of, but we we just don't see it warnings that we fail to acknowledge they just sort of bounce off there's all sorts of people who call themselves christians and, and the warnings of scripture have no meaning to them because they believe in jesus it can't really mean that we have to die to self that we have to take up the cross Where are our blind spots? And there are most likely exactly where the disciples' blind spots were. The the assumptions that we have because we are citizens of this world, we belong belong to this society, so our blind spots are most likely going to be related to sins of materialism, consumerism, eroticism, the pursuit of wealth and comfort and security in life. People 200 years from now will look back and shake their heads at us and say, Wow. Wow, we make so many blunders in the life of discipleship because we fail to understand the nature of God, the wonder of Jesus Christ, the glory of a new heaven and a new earth, the fleeting nature of things here and now, the horror of hell, all things that Jesus has told us clearly, all things that so often we just don't get, we don't understand And so our priorities and our purposes too often are not in line with Jesus' purposes and and, and his priorities, his mission. And our blindness reveals itself in the things we argue about, and that's where we come to the next text. Our blindness reveals itself in the things we argue about. Notice what they're arguing about as we look at the failure of pride. Well, they're arguing about who's the greatest. I'm not going to take a lot of time here because we've dealt with it many times before. But Jesus has just reminded them that he is going to suffer, he's going to give up his life, and they nod and politely say yes, and then they, they start uh, debating uh, who's the greatest in the kingdom. I mean, just, just paint the scene in your mind. Here you have these, these men, these mere specks of dust, made out of dust, standing in the presence of the creator of the universe, arguing about which of them is the greatest. It's the most pointless debate in the history of human arguments. What drives it? Well, it's just pride. It's, it's, just, it's just pride. You see, in their minds, everybody's, you know, they all got the same little, little, uh, little brain whirling in their heads, and they're thinking, Jesus is going to be the king, going to be really great. And I need to get up as high up the ladder as I can. There's a race for position here. And so they're jockeying for position in their self-serving pursuit of their glory and their honor. And you see, they can't help it. Do you you see why this conversation comes up over and over? They, They can't help it. It's the way they're wired. It's the way you're wired. Boys and girls, particularly boys, how come the biggest piece of cake is just irresistible? You know you should let someone else take it, but it's right there. It's screaming your name. You, you, why is it so hard to, to let your little sister have the biggest piece of cake? Because we're all wired the same way. Why is it so hard to see the next guy get the promotion at work? Or he gets the recognition? We're all wired the same way. You see, it's only the gospel that can break our bondage to self. And they don't understand the gospel yet. They don't know the gospel yet in its truth. Only when we survey the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died, right, can we count our riches gained but loss and pour contempt on our pride? The cross of Jesus Christ is the only thing that can change us. But they don't, they don't know that yet. And so they argue again, about who's the greatest. And Jesus doesn't take a lot of time arguing back. He just grabs a child, gives them a living illustration of what the kingdom actually looks like. Taking a little child, sets them in front of them and says, whoever receives this child in my name receives me, whoever serves him is the greatest. It's hard for us to imagine the impact that that would have on them. Uh, That's because in their day, um, it was just a common given assumption that you did not receive or show hospitality to lesser people. You showed hospitality to superiors or to peers because by receiving them, you were, in a sense, affirming them. You were, uh, you were identifying with them. That's why receiving someone meant to, br- to show hospitality, to have them in for a meal, and you didn't do that with lessers. That's why people were so just bewildered and... and um, offended by Jesus hanging out with tax collectors and sinners. You don't do that. And you don't hang out with little kids. Kids in those days were meant to be seen and not heard. They were gifts from God, great, but they learned to need, obe- they need to learn obedience. They need to learn humility. They, have, they, they do not matter at all on the social scale. Nowadays, we have three-year-olds running households, but in those days... <laughs> They, a child was as low on the, on the social status, uh, the ladder, that you could get. They simply didn't matter. It wouldn't, you, wouldn't have, you wouldn't have dreamed about saying to a little child, I'd like you to come into my house. I'd like to have a meal with you. All right, it's Jesus is just blowing all the circuitry again in the way that they normally think. But he, he's trying to teach them the paradoxical nature of kingdom greatness. You want to be great in God's kingdom? Boys and girls, you know how the song goes. Learn to be the servant. You don't get greatness by self-promotion. You get it through service. Jesus isn't impressed with who you have in your contact list, who's your Facebook friend, who you maybe know personally. He doesn't care. How do you talk to little kids? How do you relate to poor people? How do you... How do you um, embraced, disabled, and the insignificant members of society. That, that's what he cares about. That's what he's watching for. Greatness is found in service. And so failure again. And then the, the pride of provincialism. So you have the pride of place, and now the pride of provincialism. This, this, spart- this party spirit. I, just, I love this text. <clears throat> John answered. So they just got rebuked um, with this little kid. And John is desperate to try to regain their reputation as disciples. They're not all bad. And so he says, well, master, just to let you know, we saw someone casting out demons in your name and we tried to stop him because he does not follow with us. And Jesus said, don't stop him. The one who is not against you is for you. John clearly assumed that Jesus would be pleased with this announcement, right? He he assumed that um, Jesus would like to know that he and James have been out and they're protecting the brand. Uh, They're looking out for anyone who's uh, doing unofficial ministry. And so they see this guy and he's casting out demons and they walk up to him and, sir, uh, we are the officially appointed overseers of demonic ministry and we see you don't have your license you don't have your card you're not with us and uh, and so you need to stop well they the pathetic nature of this is, is seen in two ways first of all it seems like they were unable to make him stop they said we tried to stop him apparently he said you know go fish and kept on with his ministry But further, the the pathetic nature of this is revealed in that he was doing what they couldn't do. He was actually, actually accomplishing the ministry. He had apparently, this is apparently a man who had heard about Jesus, maybe had been in the crowds, maybe had seen Jesus, come to faith in Jesus. He seemed to understand the nature of the kingdom, the cause of Christ, and he's joined in and he's casting out demons in Jesus name. And so Jesus rebukes him. Don't stop him. The one who is not against you is for you. He's on the same side. You see Jesus rebuking their party spirit, this provincialism. Now, this is not an argument for untrained ministers, right? This isn't Je- because if that were true, Jesus would never would have trained the 12. It matters to be trained. It matters to know what you're talking about. Jesus here is popping the bubble of their disciples' self-inflated self-importance and helping them to realize that God can be doing something outside of the bounds of their little circle. I remember when we were out in, as, out in California, I was a, we were attending a, a large conservative Christ-form church, very uh, good reformed church. But uh, one of the um, one of the little thorns in our side was, again, and you've, I've, I've said this before, but this just seems to fit so well with the, so perfectly here. The, uh, one of the thorns in our side was that our, our young people were going to a local Calvary chapel on Sunday evenings, and so I was kind of the youth guy, and so I, I had to go over to the, the Calvary chapel, which I did. And um, again, very similar to my experience in the Assemblies of God, the church was packed Sunday night. Uh, almost standing room only, and uh, the place was filled with young people from every color, tribe, tongue, nation, and they got their Bibles open, and the pastor's sitting up front on a stool with a um, West Virginia sweatshirt on, <clears throat> in jeans, and he's just, he just preaches for like an hour and 15 minutes, and everybody's watching. And I, I, I was... Sort of assigned you're right to go and come back, and how can we, uh, how can we help our kids see uh, all the problems with Calvary Chapel? And I came, I came back, and what I wanted to say to the elders was, I think we should all go over there and ask them what's going on, uh, because they're doing what we're having a hard time doing. They're. People are coming. Uh, they're sharing the word. They're preaching it. Uh, they don't, don't do it the way we do it. They don't, they don't have right, the right credentials uh, uh, that we would maybe judge, but they're actually accomplishing what we seem not to be able to accomplish. We can use a lot of humility in Reformed churches, a lot of humility, to realize that God's circle is uh, God a lot bigger than our circle. And God is accomplishing things outside of people that we would credential. He's, and, and, it's, and it's for his name's sake. It's for his glory. He's pleased to use bad theology to accomplish great things. That is not an argument for bad theology. But it needs to be a reminder and a rebuke to us who think that uh, all he cares about is good theology. It's not all he cares about. It's not all he cares about. And particularly churches that do care about good theology. And we need to care about good theology because it's God's theology. It's God's truth, and bad theology has bad consequences, but good theology with pride has devastating consequences. John Wesley said, the thing I resolve... Again, not an officially sanctioned uh, author here. But he says, the thing I resolve to do is this, to use every possible method of preventing a narrowness of spirit, a party zeal, that miserable bigotry that makes men so unready to believe that there is any work of God but that which takes place among themselves we just need to recognize that that we we should care about the things that we care about but never with a party spirit and so when you see another disciple another uh, denomination or congregation doing things that maybe you're not comfortable with that's okay and it's okay to discern we need to discern but be careful lest you try to shut them down because they're not properly credentialed. Believe that God could be doing things outside of your circles. There's just a movement, and there always has been, I suppose, in conservative circles that, that seems to make a game out of looking at various ministries and poking holes in them. And this person isn't doing that right. And did you hear what happened at that church? And do you see what that guy said? And ignoring all the rest of it. Well, it's just pride. It's just pride. There's nothing of, of, of God in that. So we need to, we need to wake up. The God, God is bigger, you see, than Harvest Church. He's bigger than the Orthodox Presbyterian Church. He's bigger than Reformed and Presbyterian circles. Praise God, that's true. Let's just show the humility of it and, and appreciate it. Thank him for it. And then finally, quickly, a, a failure of perspective. So, so they move on. And they come to a Samaritan village that does not receive Jesus. They didn't welcome Jesus in. And so when James and John saw it, they said, Lord, you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? I'm sure it sounded very pious in their ears. They, they thought they were showing great zeal for the cause of Christ by judging this Samaritan village to be worthy of Sodom and Gomorrah treatment. It would make a very impressive statement, wouldn't it, to Jesus' enemies. Don't mess with Jesus or else. Right? This is noteworthy. This is the way kings act. Ugh. It's very interesting. They, they never asked to torch a Jewish village. That's interesting. There are all kinds of towns in Galilee that didn't receive Jesus, in spite of all the evidence they had. In fact, Jesus was saved very shortly, Woe to you, Bethsaida, woe to you, Chorazin. If the acts that were performed among you had happened in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented in dust and ashes a long time ago. So why such harsh response to a Samaritan village that may have never heard about Jesus? Well, because they're racists and they have ethnic prejudice. They don't like Samaritans. They don't like them at all. Samaritans are unclean, unworthy. And so let's call fire down. But most significantly, they have no clue what Jesus is about. Jesus has set his face towards Jerusalem. Luke says that several times. In other words, Jesus has set his mind and heart to go to Jerusalem. Why? To die for Samaritans, to die for the sins of the world, for every tongue and tribe. And so while Jesus is on his way to save these people, the disciples are asking if they can call down the fire of judgment on them. And so Jesus rebukes them, and he rebukes us. Too often, those who call themselves followers of Christ have raised a condemning finger at those Jesus died to rescue. So we raise an eyebrow over a tattooed body, spiked orange hair, pierced tongue or eyebrow or who knows what else. And we shake our head to the person with the gay pride T-shirt or the revealing blouse. We secretly pronounce our little sentences of condemnation without ever thinking that these are the people that Jesus died to save. That's, you see, that they're not the enemies. That's the mission field. That's the mission field. Just like we were. And so I, I, I just sense that we should pray that God would bless us here with a lot more tattoos, a lot more colored hair, a lot more people who use off-color language because they're just learning about this Jesus and what, what grace and compassion there is in God and, and they're experiencing it from the lives and lips and, of his people as we embrace people not like us People, Jesus died to save. Did you know what? That's what the majesty of God would look like in our midst. That's what the majesty of God would look like because there'd be no worldly answer for that. There'd be no worldly reason for that. Why would these people hang with these people and why would they love each other? And why would they delight in each other and and embrace each other and serve each other? Because Jesus Christ is King and Lord. That's why. Why? So there you have it, the disciples debacles, an awful, terrible, horrible, very bad, no good day at all. Didn't all happen in a day, but it all happened in a short period of time. And when they asked the fire to fall down, I just thought, you know, I can see Jesus saying, Tell you what, guys, why don't you go stand over there and talk among yourselves? And I'll stand over here and Father, would you just take care of me? <laughs> Wouldn't you? After all the time he's been with them, everything they've seen, everything they've heard, and they're pulling a stunt like this, he's going to die in Jerusalem and they're trying to torch the city in his name? But that's not what we read. We read and they went on to another village. That is that those are great words. They went on to another village. He wasn't done with them. He wasn't finished. In spite of all the failure we've seen, the unbelief, the ignorance, the pride, the racism, the self-inflated importance, the utter, complete confusion about what Jesus was about, they're still his disciples. He called them. He chose them. He's not going to give up on them. He has a work for them to do in all of their weakness. These are the men that he's going to use to change the world, to, to reach the world with the gospel of his grace. And he's going to work with them until that is accomplished. That is really good news. Do you realize that that's exactly how Jesus deals with us? He doesn't give up on you. Have you had a horrible week? Well, get in line. Lots of people this week had bad weeks. But you see, our failures don't define our futures. Jesus Christ does. Jesus is at work if we're willing to receive it and believe it and accept all the grace that's in it. In spite of your unbelief, in spite of your pride, in spite of the things that you don't see and don't get and your party spirit and judgmental attitude, Jesus loves his children. He loves his disciples. He chose you to belong to him to carry out his mission, his purpose in the world. He's not done with us yet. That is incredibly encouraging. Have you failed as a parent this week? He knows. He's not done with you. Have you failed as an evangelist this week? You had a great opportunity and you just absolutely blown it. You you blew it. He knows. He understands. He he loves you. He's not giving up on you. If you failed in the fight for sanctification this week, you, you did exactly the thing you promised you wouldn't do. He knows. Friend, he loves you. And He intends to use you and to use me as we're willing to follow Him, as we're willing to listen to Him and be trained by Him and understand as as we learn to see the world through His eyes and embrace and face the world with His mission. He intends to use us to advance His gospel cause. That's amazing. That's amazing. He's going to make us fruitful. Let's follow Him. Amen? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, forgive us for our pride, our complacency. Forgive us, Lord, for thinking that we are placed on earth to carve out a nice, comfortable, middle-class American life. Forgive us for looking at the world as the enemy. The principles of the world are. The, the spirit of the age is. But the people are the mission field. And Father, we just we pray you'd forgive us for all of our failures, our unbelief and ignorance and party spirit and pride. Father, I thank you that you love us and that Jesus Christ gave his life for us and I thank you that you're willing to use us as we follow him. And and Lord, this morning, if there are any here who just have not yet bowed the knee to Christ to follow him, I pray that you would, Lord, show them the beauty and the majesty of Jesus and let them know that there is love and grace sufficient for even them in all their sin. And, Father, for all of us, I pray that we would uh, see just how kind Jesus is, how patient how compassionate he is for us, and that that kindness would free us to be kind to others, and his compassion would, would compel us to show that compassion to others, and, and his grace would make us delight in showering that grace on other people that we become a winsome, loving, bold congregation as we, uh, Lord, uh, move out into our spheres of influence, into the world where you've placed us. Father, make us good disciples, fruit-bearing disciples, pointing people to Jesus. And Lord, I pray that here at Harvest Church, that the majesty of God would be displayed, not because of how clean and, or, or apparently moral or upright we are, but, but because there's love and there's grace abounding and people are finding the power of God at work where God is doing what only God can do for his name's sake, for his name's sake, for the glory of Jesus, we pray it, amen.